and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunte. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Today we're thrilled to be talking to Regina Rini. Regina holds the Canada Research Chair in Philosophy of Moral and Social Cognition at York University in Toronto. Prior to that, she taught at NYU's Center of Bioethics. She writes a regular philosophy column for the Times Literary Supplement, and she's the author of The Ethics of Microaggression, which we'll be discussing today. Regina, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me here. It's great to do this. So let's kick off at the beginning. Um, I feel that microaggression suffers a little bit from the fact that lots of people don't really believe in microaggressions. Can you can you help us understand what they are as a starting point? Sure. So the idea of a microaggression is that it's a small act of insult or indignity that by itself wouldn't be a big deal, might not even be noticeable, except that it's part of a pattern. It's part of a systemic pattern of similar insults or indignities that target certain sorts of people. So it's easiest to get this if we have an example in mind. One of the classic standard examples is the following. I'm here in Toronto. Suppose that a a person of of East Asian background here in Toronto is asked by somebody else, where are you from? And they reply, I'm from Calgary. And the person who's asking the question says, no, no, where are you really from? Right, the implication of the question is, you can't really be from Calgary because you're not white you need to be from somewhere else, East Asia, presumably. And the question, the, the point of the question was finding out where are you at, where's your family from? And again, by itself, this one instance isn't that big a deal. In fact, I've, I've heard from some people of color uh, who enjoy getting this question and say, I, I, I like getting a chance to talk about my family. So by itself, one instance might not be that big a deal, but for some people, the repeated pattern, the, the selectivity of this kind of question that, um, people, the white people don't get asked, where are you really from when they say Calgary, whereas people of color get that question. That's a, a systemic pattern. Let me give you one more example. And that has to do with this. Suppose you're driving in a large city and you're, you're at a stoplight and a couple of young black men walk by on the passenger side. And without even thinking about it, you hit the lock button on the car door. You don't even plan it. You don't evaluate it, you just do it by instinct, and the young black men hear the click of the locks, and they look at you, and it's clear they hear that you were thinking about them, at least implicitly as a threat, even though they did nothing to you, and they were just walking by. Again, by itself, one time, that doesn't sound like that big a deal, but if you're a member of a marginalized community who's regularly targeted with lots and lots of similar small incidents, it starts to add up over time. So the basic idea of a microaggression is it's an act like that that's small on its own, but in a systemic pattern, it starts to cause long-term harm and disrespect. Regina, that makes lots of sense. Thanks. There's a, there's a, there's a couple of key pieces there, but let's perhaps focus on two. One is the fact that um, 
I think I've heard people use the term microaggression to describe sort of simple sort of minor acts of nastiness, sort of like passive aggression or, you know, being slightly snarky. Um, I think your point is that um, it's, it's absolutely not that. These are, these are acts of, of, of aggression of one form or another, um, verbal, nonverbal, environmental, um, that A, they form part of a pattern, and B, they can, in a sense, only be targeted, they can only be experienced by minorities or people or, or, or the oppressed. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the idea is that, um, that, of course, anybody can experience small acts of rudeness. Uh, no one's denying that that's possible. But the idea is to reserve the term microaggression for the particular type of small acts of rudeness that are experienced by members of marginalized groups. And so let me give a couple of reasons for doing that. One is just historical. That is how the term was defined. So people tend to think this term is kind of new. You might have only heard it in the last five, seven years. That's true of me. I, didn't, I don't think I'd ever heard the term until about five or seven years ago. But actually, the term is 50 years old. The term was coined in 1970 by the Harvard psychiatrist Chester Pierce. And he defined it at that time in 1970 in terms very close to what I just gave you. It is essential to the concept that it has to do with acts of indignity or disrespect that are targeted at marginalized people. He was particularly thinking about uh, black people in the United States in the mid 20th century. Uh, but generally the idea is it has to be targeted at marginalized groups of people. So that's a historical reason. Now, of course, we can change terms. It might be that we, that we decide that term was originally defined to be about marginalized people, but we could generalize it to all acts of rudeness. But there's a reason not to do that. One is that we lose track of something morally important. Right? So I, I, the reason why I stressed so much that this isn't just single random instances of rudeness is that what makes these morally significant is that pattern, that systemic pattern of the same people, the same types of people being repeatedly targeted with similar sorts of disrespect. And if we redefine the term, if we cancel out its original definition and now just make it about any random act of rudeness, we lose a word that tracks that morally significant category. And I think that would be a conceptual mistake. So I'm not gonna get like mad at people who use it in this generic, any act of rudeness sense, but I think they are implicitly revising a term that was defined for a particular reason and they're revising it, I think, more by accident than by intention. If, we, if we're thoughtful about it, I think we can see that there's pretty good reason not to revise it. Okay, so the systemics, I think, here are, the, are, the, are, a, are a big part. Just for the sake of argument, I, the most, I think, I think white, straight, cis men are supposed to, what, to, I think you described in the book, sort of playing the easiest level of the game of life. We get all the, we get all the advantages, and that's, that's, that's who that's, I am. Uh, that's John Scalzi's term, not mine. He says it's the easiest difficulty setting on the game of life. <laughs> right, <laughs> um, which is which you know, which is my which is my setting. Um, if one's thinking of it purely in systemic terms, one might say, for example, that um, uh, I and people like me were brought up, for example, not to cry or to be strong or to believe that you know manliness was expressed in a particular kind of way. Could one? What would be the value? In, in, in excluding that notion of sort of systemic uh, performance on, on, you know, the most privileged of all types, namely me? Yeah, I, that's, I think that's a fair question to ask. So uh, this is a, a, a topic that is somewhat unsettled in the philosophical literature on oppression, because it is true that some systems of oppression are also not so good for the apparent uh, 
I don't know, winners in the system. So like, like you mentioned, there are form, some forms of socialization that target straight white men that are constricting. Uh, a good example of that is to think about um, in North American culture, men who work as nurses, uh, an increasingly common phenomenon, but sometimes report that they feel that they are, are regarded both in the nursing profession and also in the community more generally as in some way did not define norms or somehow, you know, th th there's, there's a sense that that is not approved of by everybody. Um, and then less, less dramatic, or like you said, just the general idea that men don't cry, that sort of thing. Um, and so there are ways in which the apparent victors or, or winners in an oppressive system can also be constrained in other ways. Um, the reason though to, to separate that out, I think is important, which is that the kinds of marginalization or oppression that we're thinking about are pervasive. They aren't just in certain areas of life. It's not just like if a man wants to be a nurse, he's going to face this kind of targeting or if a man is caught crying in some circumstances. These are much more general in the sense that if you're a person of color, if you're queer, if you're a woman, if you're a Muslim, if you're, in, if you're disabled, you're likely to face much more pervasive discrimination in housing, in employment, uh, in educational opportunities, advancement of your career and your projects, um, and for many people in their personal relationships, their love life. Basically, it, the, the thought is there are these particular categories of marginalization that extend throughout your life across all different ways you go out and interact with people. And that does seem more systemic and, and life constraining and the particular forms of oppression you're talking about that target men. So that the key thing here is to, is to not deny that there can be harms of oppression to everybody, including these seeming winners, but to also recognize, I think it's important there's a categorical difference between that and the kind of thing that can result in inability to find work or housing. Fantastic, yes. I think, and so this is the this core point that one cannot acknowledge or deal with the notion of a microaggression without also acknowledging and dealing with the idea of systemic or structural uh, inequality. Is that right? That's exactly right, yes. Gotcha. Um, there is a wonderful story uh, that you describe. It's a difficult story, but, um, but it's wonderful because it surfaces so many of the various different issues that I'd like us to talk about, which happens to the Professor Derald Wing Sue. I just wondered whether you might be able to share that story with us because it'll help us um, sort of unwrap so many of the key, the key issues around microaggressions. Yeah, it's a, it's a very um, clear story to get at some of the core issues. So Daryl Wing Su is probably the foremost theorist of microaggression alive today. I mentioned before Chester Pierce created the concept. Pierce um, passed away a few years ago. So Su is probably the most prominent person today working on it. He's a psychologist at Columbia University in New York. And he writes in a research article this story, this real true story that happened to him. He was on a small airplane flying between New York and Boston. And he and a colleague, a colleague who was an African-American, boarded the plane together. They sat down in the, in the second row of seats in the small airplane. And then the flight attendant came through and said, we need to rebalance the weight on the plane. We need to spread out passengers. And, and, the, and she asked him, Daryl Winksu and his colleague, to move to the back row of the plane. And he said to her, you realize you've asked the only people of color on this plane to move to the back of the bus. And she reacted very defensively. She said, I, I, I don't know the exact quote, but she said something like, well, I, I've never been accused of that before. That's certainly not what I was doing. Uh, and, and Sue points out that sitting right in front of him were some white men who could just as easily have moved, but she didn't ask them instead. And so he uses this case. He talks about this case to get at the idea of differing perceptions. 
in thinking about microaggression. The question here is, is what he perceived the correct reality of what happened? Is it really the case? As, as he describes it as a theorist, he thinks that she was motivated by a kind of not implicit or non-conscious cognition. She doesn't know it, but she was motivated by some sense that people of color are, the comfort of people of color is less important than that of white people. And so if somebody's got to move, let's make the people of color do it. Not that she's an overt racist, he doesn't think that, but that she doesn't quite realize that she's implicitly prioritizing white people's comfort over that of people of color. That of course is not her perception. Her perception is that she was just, she picked some people, perhaps at random, um, might have been for plausible reasons, like the people in the second row were closer to the back of this small plane than the white people in the first row. And maybe that was the entire reason. I don't know, I wasn't there. And Sue doesn't tell us all the logistics. But the point is she perceives it as having some other explanation than implicit racial biases, whereas he perceives it that way. And so this case is really hard. It shows us the difficulty of microaggression because multiple people involved in the same case can see it different ways. It's such an it's an it's an amazing story, pr precisely for that point. That obviously microaggression, as you put it in your book, is in a sense always in the eye of the beholder. And we'll come to that in a second, but also because it also highlights the the importance of in interpretation here. Um, you describe a couple of other interpretations. So the first is that she's you know explicitly racist and uh, the, the, therefore assumes that it's okay for people of color to sit at the back of the of the of the bus as you say the second is that she's implicitly and unconsciously racist and doing the same thing the third is her argument which is that she just didn't see what was going on i really loved your fourth which was that there may have been another kind of bias at work which is a woman nervous of the sort of of the sexism of three powerful white besuited maybe slightly inebriated white men at the front of the plane worried about the sexist response she might receive preferred to um preferred to ask two kindly looking academics to move to the back uh, rather than um, rather than be threatened by these other men so you see all these various different sort of systemic layers of power at play here too yeah that's right and that, I, I thought it was interesting that you know when i, I was reading this um, that was the explanation that occurred to me. And Sue didn't, I, I, fair enough, didn't, didn't occur to him, but that was what I thought of. I imagined this flight attendant in her line of work, she's probably used to dealing with men who don't like being asked to do things, being quote unquote ordered by a woman to do things. Um, and the, the picture we've been given is there's these three white men wearing business suits in the front row who got on the plane at the last minute. We're not told this, but I can imagine they came from the airport bar. And then here in the second row are these two academics and I can just imagine her quickly doing the processing and thinking, who is the least likely to give me trouble about being asked to move to the back of the plane? And she decided the academic looking men in the second row were better to talk to than the uh, possibly inebriated suit wearing guys in the front row. Um, and if that's what's going on, then the explanation is, does implicate some a complicated pattern of structural injustice, of oppression and marginalization targeted at her. But again, the tricky thing about this case is presumably she wouldn't be able to identify that consciously in the moment as the explanation of what's happening. She may never recognize that's what's happening because you know she's busy, she's doing her job. She doesn't have time to reflect on exactly why she's doing what she's doing. It might just be a protective instinct she's learned over years on the job to talk to, the, to make this request to the people who look less likely to give her trouble. And so given all these explanations, given that we can't really know 
which one is the correct description of reality because we don't have like some machine that lets us read the subconscious thoughts of this woman while she's busy doing her job that causes a real problem for ethical analysis so let's jump straight into this because the story also allows us to unpack that piece too here what you have is somebody or two people who perceive really quite brutal harm to them they've been asked as people of color to sit at the back of the bus with all the connotations, implications, echoes of that move. Um, so a, a real harm has been caused. From the flight attendant's perspective, she's asked two people to move to the back to rebalance the plane. And um, because of their interpretation of that very, very simple request, she's potentially in a position to be blamed for perhaps the worst social crime um, that one can be accused of today, which is racism. And, and here is what your book does so very, very well, is to split out the fact that, as, as you put it, um, the problem with, with, with microaggression or the furore around it is in the sense that, and I'm quoting you, we suffer from an inability to hold two thoughts in our heads at the same time. The first is that microaggressions add up to real and serious harm in the lives of marginalized people. And the second is that most microaggressions are not the sort of thing that we can easily blame people for. That there's this real disconnect between the harm caused and the blame attributable. Can you help us <laughs> sort of unravel all of this? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's part of why I got so interested in this topic is that normally when we think about cases of harm being done, it's pretty easy. If somebody you know, gets um, a bit drunk at a pub and takes a swing at somebody else, it's pretty easy to say, well, this person was mostly in control of themselves. They mostly knew what they were doing and they intentionally attacked another person. And we know who gets blamed for that in most cases. But microaggressions are so hard because they typically don't meet traditional philosophical conceptions of blameworthiness. Uh, would that would be helpful point for me to introduce a couple of those? Yes, please. That'd be lovely. Thank you. Sure. So there are two key points. Uh, this comes from centuries of philosophical thinking about what it makes someone morally blameworthy. One is that you know what you're doing and you're in control of your action. And the other is that we can assign the cause of the action clearly, the cause of the, the effect, the cause of what happened. We can assign that clearly to you. So let me take those in turn. The first idea is you're in control of yourself and you know what you're doing. And the problem with microaggressions, as we've already seen from the example on the airplane, is that it's not always clear people know what they're doing or in control of themselves. Even on Sue's perception of what happened, that the flight attendant was motivated by unconscious racism, she's not aware of that motivation. And she probably doesn't have in the moment personal control or whether it expresses herself, whether it expresses itself in her actions. So even if Sue is right about what motivated her, it doesn't look like she has full control over the, over the uh, effects of that motivation. And so that already is part of the problem of assigning blame. Even if Sue's right about what's going on, it's not entirely clear we can blame this woman for what she's done. The second factor I mentioned is a little bit more esoteric, but, if, but I think I can explain it fairly quickly. And it has to do with the harm that's been caused. Because remember, microaggressions aren't bad just because of the one incident. If this was the only time in Daryl Wing Sue's life that he felt that he'd been unreasonably targeted because of his ethnicity, it wouldn't be that big a deal. It's only because of the repeated pattern that this happens over and over and over again. And so 
the harm is a result of the accumulation of lots of small harms. And we have a really hard time thinking about moral blame for that. A good analogy here is climate change, right? The harms of climate change can be quite severe when they cause serious flooding, changes in temperatures, crop failures. But each of us contributes only tiny, tiny bits as an individual level. Maybe some oil company executives are not so tiny, but most of us are constantly contributing tiny, tiny bits. Right now, you and I are using electricity to have this conversation. Presumably that's fired by some municipal power plant that's producing emissions. So we are contributing tiny little bits to that cumulative harm. And we have a really hard time assigning moral responsibility for our tiny individual contributions to big collective harms. So to take that idea and return it to the case in the airplane, this is a small act, this one thing this woman has done, by itself, it would have very little effect. It's only in combination with many other small acts by many other people that adds up to a cumulative pattern of big harm to marginalized people. So we have the same problem we did with climate change of saying, how do we assign blame for these tiny little fractional contributions to a big systemic problem? So now we've got both of those problems. Same problem with climate change, the fractional contribution, and the problem with assigning responsibility for things people don't quite know they're doing or have full control of. So you talk about the, the, the difference, I mean, the chapter title, which, which looks at this in the book, is, is you call collective harm versus individual blame, uh, which sort of sums up a little bit what the nub of this issue is. Is, it, is this where you think the furore, the anger, the rage around the concepts of microaggressions come from? I'm thinking of Jonathan Haidt, the founder of Moral Foundations Theory, um, who's written a book on the coddling of the American mind, this hysteria around cancel culture, claims of nimbyism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do, you think, do you think it comes from this misunderstanding of um, harm and blame and its attribution, or does it come from something else? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think there are multiple sources of the the difficulty, the social difficulties. Um, but you mentioned Haidt's view in particular, and I think you're right that in the case of Jonathan Haidt um, and his co-author Greg Lukianoff, a lot of their concerns, I think, are due to a misunderstanding. They repeatedly characterize microaggressions as just slights or rudeness, and they talk about it as, as the sort of thing people have to learn to deal with. Um, and I think that is just a lack of understanding that this is not just, like we said at the beginning, it's not just ordinary random rudeness. It is targeted and systematic and it affects certain people, not others, in a systemic way. And to talk about it as they do, to just ignore that systemic factor, is I think to really miss both the harm, both the reason why we have to deal with microaggressions and make them not happen anymore, but also importantly to miss the difficulty of assigning blame. It, it's actually, um, I, I kind of wish these authors, people like Haidt and Lukianoff appreciated this because to some extent, I think they have a point. It's just they've mischaracterized what the point is. They're treating this as a bunch of oversensitive kids, not, uh, not putting into appropriate context how this is just a minor slight. And what they're missing is that the kids are the kids, and it's not just kids, of course, but that's what, how they're talking, um, that the people are, are, um, are, are correctly tracking systemic indignities and harms the problem is in how we assign responsibility, both for, for backward-looking assessments of who did wrong, but also for forward-looking decisions about how to fix it. And that's really hard. And I don't think we have, a, I don't think I have a full answer to that either, although the book aims at partly addressing that. And that, that difficulty, I think, it's important to address it directly and not obscure it with these less informative, less illuminating worries about uh, that the kids getting oversensitive. 
Yeah, so this key, key, key element that Jonathan Haidt and Lukyanov talk, talk about in the coddling of the American mind, but I've seen argued by many friends of mine who work in academia, for example, which is a very rarefied space. Let's also be clear about, about it. It's not, it's, there are very few social or, or workplace environments in which the idea of microaggressions really gets any play at all. So um, let's also recognize it for the, 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 uh, the rarity that it is. But there's a sense that the, uh, the punishment for uh, the act is disproportionate to, um, to, to the amount of blame that can be attributed. I think, sorry, that's a sort of unwieldy way of describing it, but back to the air hostess, being accused of racism on your, uh, on your job is instantly a fireable offense. Um, that, one of the questions that you asked just now is how do we deal with, um, with something which causes over the long term in a systemic way a great deal of harm, but which it's, it's very difficult to apportion blame to the individual. How do, how do we deal with that without having people terrified of being fired, fired from, from, from their jobs for potentially unconscious bias, um, but also taking it on the chin and realizing that there is an issue here? Yeah, I, I want to, that's the big question. I want to answer it, but I also want to address something that you, you kind of snuck in as a presupposition in the question, which I think is a mistake. You talked about academic environments as being rarefied and some of the critiques uh, pe from people like Luganoff, et cetera, is to think of discussion of microaggressions and affectation of well-off college students uh, or, or you know, university folks and bureaucrats. Um, and I think that's just a big mistake. For one thing, a lot of the contemporary discussion of microaggression comes from activists, some of whom might be well off, but many of whom are not, many of whom are people who are in day-to-day -day contact. Further, there is a, probably a reason why people like Haidt and Luganoff perceive this as a discussion coming from privileged groups. It's because that's who they talk to. Um, and that's who has the social power to be able to communicate these points. It's really important to remember that, that you know, places like uh, our universities have strong protections for students and also for often unionized faculty that makes it hard to bring down um, disciplinary retribution on people who point out systemic inequality. Sorry, Regina, I, I, should, I should jump in because I, I actually meant it sort of the, in the opposite way. Oh. What, I, what I meant to suggest was that um, the idea that microaggressions or the, the, the concept of microaggressions is throttling uh, free inquiry um, is, I think, an absurdity because the very idea of microaggressions so doesn't have that much purchase elsewhere. I sort of meant it, in, therefore, in, in the opposite way. Not that oh. a whole bunch of privileged students are... Um, uh, are complaining about something which doesn't really impact them, a sort of an affectation as uh, Hyde might describe it. But I so much as to say that, no, 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 that, that microaggression somehow is this is the scourge of freedom of speech across all corners of, 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 of discourse, which of, which of course it's not. Very few people are even aware, as you say, of the term. It's quite a new idea. Yeah, okay. I, this is, this is, I think I jumped at the chance to attack a particular irritant of mine in this, this, uh, in this <laughs> especially in the popular writing about this, especially like the Atlantic article that Haidt and Lukianoff wrote. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I'm flattered to be, to be a stand-in for uh, the very brilliant John Haidt too. Um, but let's perhaps talk therefore to, uh, to this question of free speech. Palia, as you know, is a civil discourse project. We're trying to build an encyclopedia of opinion in the hope that we can help people bridge the gap, sort of um, so bridge the polarization, bridge the political divide, and therefore freedom of speech is super, super important to us. Um, 
we are believers in the marketplace of ideas and um, not, 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 um, not uncritical believers, but nevertheless, or sort of aspiring believers, perhaps. Um, you have a very careful and nuanced definition of microaggression, which runs, if I may, as follows. You describe microaggressions as an act or event that is perceived by a member of an oppressed group as possibly, but not certainly, instantiating oppression. In other words, microaggressions really are all in the eye of the beholder. And that throws up a bunch of problems, or it, it might appear to throw up a bunch of problems for free speech, because it sort of feels like you know, thought police culture, but almost reversed. In the days of Tastasi, you could be hauled off for an idea that someone might have suspected you of holding. Whereas with your definition of the microaggression, it sort of allows the perpetrator, it's sort of in question, in quotation marks, to be hauled off for a thought that someone else might have suspect, be, might be suspected of having had, if you see what I mean. So how, how does one, I should um, preface this by, by stating I am a full, I fully understand um, the, the idea of systemic injustice. I'm 100% behind the idea that everyday culture reinforces that injustice. But how do you deal with that critique of, of, of the idea of microaggression? Yeah, so part of the big problem here is the assumption that um, microaggressions are firing offenses, which is almost never true, actually. Um, the vast, I mean, I, I would, I can't, I don't know how to quantify this, but I would say upwards of 99% of all microaggressions, there are no consequences for the person who microaggresses. In fact, it's so small and quick that the person who is being, the marginalized person is destabilized and doesn't have time to figure out how to handle it, and they just let it go. Um, and so, it just almost all microaggressions never get any reaction at all. Even those that do tend to lead to, at maximum, something like an apology. Uh, the, the cases that make the news are the ones where someone in HR overreacts to a relatively minor thing, or because there's an uproar on social media, somebody gets fired um, just to try to protect the, the PR standing of the corporation that employs them. And so the problems there, I think, get misattributed to discussions of microaggression, when in fact the problem is something about precarious employment. It's about having an at-will employment contract without some sort of strong union protection that allows um, you to have it to, to fight back if you've been unfairly accused of something much greater than what you actually did. I, I'm writing a different book right now about social media and what it's doing to our culture. And one of my big worries there is that setting aside microaggression and systemic inequality right now, I think that the kind of uh, mobbing the, the, the pile on on social media is really bad across many, many dimensions of life, especially in politics, but also in people's employment security. Um, and so I, I do think there's a problem here, but I think it's a mistake to understand that as being a problem about microaggression rather than a problem about how we haven't figured out how to use the influence social media gives us. So I'd want to bracket these like these these really dramatic cases where somebody gets fired because they said something relatively minor as falling under that heading. The more, the more serious problem I think that has to do specifically with microaggression is supposing that firing people for minor offenses is off the table, how do we handle it? Given that we can't genuinely blame people in many cases, how do we motivate people to avoid uh, contributing to the systemic pattern of harm without relying on these heavy, uh, unfair things like firing, taking away their means of sustaining themselves and their families? And here I think we have to rely upon informal, relatively mild, interpersonal forms of interaction. And this is where blame comes in as a kind of communication between people. 
So I introduced a bunch of stuff right there. You asked me about the nuanced definition of microaggression. I haven't actually addressed that yet in the idea of the beholder. I kind of feel like we're at a crux point with a couple of different issues. Which one do you think we should address first? Perhaps would you help us understand this idea that microaggressions are in a sense always in the eye of the beholder. And while that may be problematic on some levels, it has to be that way. Yeah, good. So I think it does need to be that way um, because the alternatives end up causing more trouble. So if I forget to say this by the end of explaining this idea, let me say it now. I don't think that this eye of the beholder concept is free of trouble. It has all kinds of trouble. But my worry is that any other way of thinking about microaggression has even worse trouble. So we already saw one at the beginning, which is Sue's theory that the flight attendant on the airplane has an unconscious racial bias, and that's what's motivating her, which may very well be true. It may be a fact about her psychology, but the trouble is that no one is in a position to know that. She isn't, Sue isn't, we reading about this story 15 years later, we're not in a position to know it. And so thinking about microaggression that way as, it only counts as a microaggression if the person actually does have some little psychological component that's racist or sexist. That means we're never really gonna know whether microaggressions are happening in individual cases. Let's just grant for the sake of argument, if I think it's gotta be true, that they definitely happen at some points, but we'll never know about particular cases. Was that just a total accident? Or was that one of the times when the little psychological component was activating and causing implicit racism or sexism? And so, I think it's worrisome to have this already controversial concept come down to cases where we're just never gonna know whether or not the person is having the kind of motivation that makes it count as a microaggression. So to avoid that problem, I say that the right way to define microaggression is in terms of the experience of the target the person who's on the receiving end. And this is why I define it really carefully as being an actor event that's perceived by a member of an oppressed group as possibly but not certainly instantiating oppression. Right. What we want to do is describe events where people see that might have been a case of racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, etc., but I'm not certain. We want to include that certainty restriction because really obvious cases of, blazingly obvious cases of oppression are not microaggressions. There's something worse. There's something bigger. They're, like, they're things like burning a cross in someone's lawn or shouting a racial slur at somebody in a crowded room. Those are not microaggressions because they're not ambiguous. They're incredibly obvious. Microaggression is picking out this really tricky category that's a bit short of being obviously oppressive, but the person who's receiving it senses there's a pretty good chance this is an instance. And so the way I've defined the concept says, yeah, that person is the authority on whether or not they're having that experience of ambiguity and uncertainty, because that experience is really important. It's destabilizing. It's realizing something bad might have just been done to me. That's part of a pattern that has happened before, but I'm not certain. And so I have to second guess myself and the people around me won't necessarily believe me if I say, hey, look, it's that pattern again. And that experience is really a problem in and of itself. And so it's important the definition of microaggression pick that out and make that the focus of concern. So notice how this shifts our questions. The question is no longer, is this a microaggression or not? Because the person who had the experience is the authority on that. It's not a question of what's going on in somebody else's head. It's their own experience. But now we have the question of, well, what do we do with that? What does it matter interpersonally, morally, politically, that somebody is experiencing this ambiguous case and may, may, it probably was oppression, but I'm not sure. What do we do with that as a moral question? And that, that I think is the right place to put the uncertainty rather than on does this count as a microaggression or not? Understood. 
Okay, so in the context of free speech, I wonder whether we go, we go all the way back. The great defense of free speech is John Stuart Mill in On Liberty, who makes a very clear distinction between acts of violence to the body and acts of, I suppose, violence to the mind. Or harm is an idea that only can be, uh, can be experienced by the body. These are in the glory days where the mind and the body were still considered separate, I think. Um, but that, so his, his core idea is we need freedom of speech because you cannot actually harm with speech. You can harm with sticks. Um, or bombs and everything else, and we need to we need free speech to be able to tease out the best ideas and ensure that the, the, the best ones bubble up to the surface. Classic definition. Over the course of the twentieth century, the mind is or actually earlier, right? The, the the mind is is embodied. Hume, I think it might be, and we understand that you can cause damage to someone's mind. You can cause harm to someone's mind. That therefore, that that very clear line in the sand between between harm caused to the body and discussion and speech is instantly blurred. And with all sorts of subsequent um, results for discussions around free speech, we're constantly trying to tease out what counts as uh, an act of harm. With microaggressions, it goes even more granular. It seems to go even more detailed there. And I just wonder where you see this being played out, whether you think that there is anything problematic about the idea of sanctioning people or sanctioning perpetrators of microaggressions based on the eye of the beholder experience of the target of those. Does it chill free speech as so many people, starting with John Haidt and others, would claim? Yeah, so you frame this in terms of Mill's classic defense of free speech. Um, and if there's rich philosophical questions I'm happy to talk about, but I want to just make sure it's something that's very clear at the beginning. No one advocates criminalizing microaggressions. No one. If it gets talked about in that way, a lot of people people who don't like microaggression like to like to catastrophize by talking about gotcha. Orwellian uh, government restrictions. I don't know a single serious scholar of microaggression who has ever advocated government uh, criminal punishments for microaggressions. You might find some random people on Twitter who say that, <laughs> right. but none of the people who are in this literature. I, I'm not I, I'm not correcting you on this. I'm correcting listeners like who might get this misapprehension from what they've read before. It's really important. Um, and so the million point about legal restrictions on free speech don't actually apply here because no one is advocating criminal restrictions on microaggression. Just that, that's super clear. Thank you. Um, the, the correlate that others might make is that um, if people are able to lose their jobs for microaggressions, in the, as you say, in the 1% of cases that that potentially can happen, um, that's, <laughs> that can often be worse than criminalization. Okay. And that yeah, does no, happen, right? Fair, fair enough. I, I just wanted to make sure because the, the familiar yes. brings into people's heads worries about government censorship. And that's just not on the table here. It's not part of the discussion. And, I, and, and you're not doing this, but other people have done this. Um, so I wanted to make sure that was clear. Now, there are things that are not government restrictions that can be really bad for people's lives and that can chill open discussion. And I think that's, what you're, that's where it's right to have this conversation. So things like corporate or university speech codes, uh, disciplinary measures by HR departments or collegiate uh, academic integrity departments, things like that. And you're right that there can be cases where non-governmental entities can severely affect people's lives and will sometimes do that as a form of retribution or discipline for microaggressive actions. Again, as you acknowledged, I think these are extremely rare. This, this almost never happens and we tend to hear about the few cases where it does because they, 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 get, they get talked about all over Twitter. Um, and they dominate our mind in a way I think is misleading because they're so rare, but they do happen. And 
uh, it's hard to talk about them abstractly. It depends on the details. Sometimes you dig into the details and, well, let me put it this way. Sometimes when I dig into the details of a case, I think, oh no, this person really did make an honest mistake. Maybe, maybe it was not a good thing for them to do, but they should not have been fired. And it looks like an HR department panicked or, or someone in the university bureaucracy got worried about a Twitter flame war. And so they just decided to, to make a scapegoat. Sometimes that is what happens. And like I said before, a lot of the problem here has to do with precarious employment. But sometimes you dig into the details and you discover that the media representation of what happened actually trivialized something that was more serious. A lot of times this happens with cases of sexual harassment or are sexist microaggressions where the thing that makes the news is some one relatively small incident. But then it turns out when the university investigates, the person concerned actually has a 20 year history of being accused of sexual harassment or sexual assault. And that's actually why they got fired, not the relatively small incident that makes the news. So it's hard to talk about these abstractly because we get misled by the initial media representation of like a case where everybody says, oh my God, that doesn't seem like a firing offense. Why did they get fired? And then we don't follow up a couple of years later to find out exactly what the story was and whether it was one of those hyperreactive HR cases or whether it was a case where the microaggression was a kind of, it was the, was the proverbial canary in the coal mine for much deeper actual fireworthy offenses. So I think that's kind of coloring this discussion is that the cases we have in mind, uh, each of us is probably thinking of different cases right now, uh, are, are different patterns and they may not be representative of the underlying phenomenon. So that's all by a long way of just saying we have to be careful how we think about this because I will concede and I think almost all microaggression theorists will concede there are cases where somebody loses their job or is really roughly treated uh, in the name of preventing microaggression that should not happen, that are unjust and should not happen. But we have to be careful over generalizing in those relatively rare cases all ties back to this fundamental issue right of the fact that there is a tremendous amount of harm caused but very very difficult to attribute blame and therefore there's a potential for overreaction just as there's been huge a, a, you know a sort of a forever long history of underreaction there's now a potential for overreaction now yeah that's absolutely right and and um over the long term we may have to apply a similar analysis to our response to systemic harms so i mean uh, it's hard to do this with microaggression, but, we, but let's, let's imagine a fanciful example of climate change. Imagine that um, some, you know, extremely uh, green government comes into power or some, or some co corporation decides it's going to commit to absolute environmentalism and it starts, you know, I don't know, publicly shaming people who don't recycle and it, you know, it hires hackers to get into their email and find the most embarrassing things about them and just conjure some horrible dystopian scenario where in the service of a good goal that is saving the planet, people start doing really terrible things and overreacting to individual contributions to climate change. That would be really bad. And we would need as a society to constrain those who are going too far and responding inappropriately. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't reduce emissions. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to fix climate change. And I think the same thing is going on. There are some cases of, of overreaction, some rare cases of overreaction to dealing with microaggression, even, even systemic oppression. But that doesn't mean we just ignore the entire problem and say, oh, this is all just privileged college students overreacting to something and, we, and we're fine and we don't have to deal with it. And that's the really hard balance. I think the, the, the piece which, the, the sentence which jumped out most um, I, uh, around this issue from your book is, I think, your future book, your next book, which is um, the all the dangers 
of uh, of social media and how social media amplifies these things because um i'm not in a, i'm not an academic but i spend far too much time on twitter and there the kind of mob mentality of twitter really is terrifying and and, and does perform that so i i'm really looking forward to your next book but in the meantime regina thank you so much for walking us through this book which we will link to in the show notes um and we're tremendously grateful to have you come and talk to us all about thank you well thank you so much it was a really good conversation i really enjoyed it that was on opinion the palia podcast check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions to stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests subscribe to on opinion the palia podcast wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.